this morning from John chapter 10, Ezekiel chapter 34. How powerful is your shepherd? Really? How powerful is this Jesus as your shepherd? Do we really understand that? John, John the Apostle, why did you write this gospel? I'll tell you why I wrote this gospel, he would say to us. I told you in the gospel itself. In John 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not in this book. But these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that you, by believing, may have life in his name. More than the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Apostle John uniquely, unique to him, uniquely writes the claims of Jesus to be the Messiah. Claims that we have already seen Jesus making on every page of this gospel. Last week we entered the 10th chapter of John where Jesus spoke of being the good shepherd. Why did Jesus choose to speak on that theme at this time? Why did John choose to why did why did John choose to write this and put it at just this place in the gospel? What is the context? We asked this question last week. What's the context of this discourse on the Good Shepherd? We said there are two contexts for his discourse on the Good Shepherd. There's two contexts for this 10th chapter of John. The first context was the what we call the immediate context. The second was a much, much larger context. Last week we looked at the immediate context. We saw that the events of chapter 9, the previous chapter, the events of chapter 9, naturally lead us into the subject of be Jesus being the good shepherd. That's the immediate context. You, Jesus had healed in that ninth chapter a blind beggar of just lifelong blindness. The Pharisees were in a wad about it. Can you imagine that? These religious leaders, great religious leaders, and they're in a wad about Jesus making a man see. Ah, but he did it on the Sabbath day. That's work. He shouldn't have done that. They were hard-hearted about this wonderfully merciful act by Jesus. They were cruel to the man because the man gave Jesus the credit. They literally threw the man out of the synagogue. You read this and you think about it and put it in a real context. It's ridiculous. A man, blind from birth, forced into begging, eking out a living day after day after day, blind. And Jesus heals him. It's the greatest thing that's ever happened to him. And the religious leaders 
They throw him out of the synagogue. They throw him out of the church. They excommunicate him because of what Jesus did. In response, Jesus hears about what's happened. And Jesus goes and looks for him. Imagine that. Jesus going and looking. That's something. You know that he does that with us. He goes and looks for us personally. The man in response worships Jesus as a Messiah. Right at that point. Here's the immediate context. Right at that point, Jesus speaks about these poor shepherds. How poor and awful and terrible these Pharisees and Sadducees. I mean, they were the religious leaders. They were the preachers. They were the students. I mean, they were the the students of theology. They were the leaders. And Jesus called them thieves and robbers who only cared about their own interests and not the interest of the flock. And so after he makes the con, after he speaks about them not shepherding his flock as they should, he says that he, in contrast, is the good shepherd. And we ask the question, does Jesus, the Son of God, really care for me? We heard Jesus answer that question in detail last week. So the immediate context of this discourse on shepherding was the story of Jesus' care for the blind beggar. But there's another context that usually is passed over. And I would call it a a larger and much, much greater context. This context reaches all the way back to the Old Testament, specifically to Ezekiel 34. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, what does this have to do with me this week? You know, Jesus reaches back hundreds of years to some obscure passage in Ezekiel that I don't even know about. And somehow that's related to what Jesus says. That's exactly right. I remember when the first time, I remember the first time I read Ezekiel 34. I was young. But even then, as I read it, I said, this is where Jesus got the story of the good shepherd. This is where it comes from. People, John 10 is inextricably entwined with Ezekiel 34. Jesus himself, that day when he spoke, Jesus was thinking of Ezekiel 34. And you say, well, how do you know that? You'll see that for yourself. And you'll be forced to come to the same conclusion. In Ezekiel 34, Israel is in exile in Babylon. God had judged Israel for her sins. In his providence, he had brought Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, conquering through that entire area around the Mediterranean. And Jerusalem had been wiped out, destroyed under the judgment of God. There was no more Jerusalem, no more city. And the inhabitants of Judah had been carried away by the thousands and thousands and thousands to Persia and Babylon. God, through Ezekiel, speaks to Israel in Babylon. The the prophecy, the preaching of Ezekiel is in Babylon. And he's addressing Israel in Babylon. 
In Ezekiel 34, God condemns the spiritual leaders of Israel who had so misled the people of Israel about God, about his word. And they carried a heavy responsibility for the reason that Israel was down in Babylon and why Jerusalem was no more. And so in Ezekiel 34, God speaks about these bad preachers, these bad prophets, these bad shepherds. I want you to look at it. It's on your scripture sheet, Ezekiel 34. We'll just look at the first six verses and you'll, you'll see what I mean. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. All shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. Remember what these shepherds in the New Testament had done with a blind man? Those words apply directly to them. With force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and over every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth and none, with none to search or seek for them. These false shepherds, they had looked out only for themselves. They were really neglecting and abusing the sheep. So after that, what does God say is going to happen to Israel? We read it this morning in our responsive reading. So just right now, pivot over to your bulletin. I want you to look at that. Look at the responsive reading. This is what he says. The Lord God says, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and seek them out. What he's saying, I'm going to be your shepherd. Just read on down through there. He says, I will feed them with good pasture. He says, I myself, read on down, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself, he keeps repeating this, will make them lie down. He said, I'm going to be the shepherd. But in the last two verses, this is what we've been leading up to this. In the last two verses of that responsive reading, he says, he will set a shepherd over them. Look at it. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be a prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. Now you're reading that, and if you know anything about your Bible, you're saying, that's not right. David lived centuries before Ezekiel. How can he say David's going to be Shepherd. The Messiah that's coming to Israel is going to be what? A descendant of David. This is a messianic passage. In the Jews in Jesus' day, the rabbis in Jesus' day, if you had been sitting in their classes, would have read Ezekiel 34 about the bad shepherds and said, the Messiah, when he comes, He'll be the good shepherd. 
Notice in John chapter 10, when Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, he does not say, I am a good shepherd, which we would say about ourselves. I'm a good shepherd. He didn't say that. He said, I am the good shepherd. He was pointing back and said, I am the good shepherd of Ezekiel 34. I'm the one of whom he prophesied. Messianic claim. Just one, one more of the many that we've seen through John. The first part of John 10, stick with me, the first part of John 10. We're going to swing over to that now, get out of Ezekiel 34. The first part of John chapter 10 took place at the Feast of Booths. That was a harvest feast that took place in the fall. But John tells us that the conversation that begins with verse 22 that we read this morning took place at the Feast of Dedication. Most of us call that Hanukkah. It's a feast, that's what it usually goes by today. Hanukkah is in our month of December. But the question, remember how, when we talked about the Feast of Booths, remember how intense, how hot Jerusalem was about the identity of Jesus, about Jesus claiming to be God, and there was plot, plot after plot after plot to do away with him? Well, this is too much later. And the question of his messiahship, the question of his deity, is even more intense right now. Let's look at it. Verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple on the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Now remember, every time John uses that phrase, and the Jews, it's talking about the leaders of the Sanhedrin. It's talking about the Pharisees. It's talking about the Sadducees. Jesus was Jewish. The 12 disciples were Jewish. All Jerusalem was Jewish. Galilee was Jewish. But every time John uses this, he uses this with, in connection with the leaders of the Sanhedrin that constantly harassed Jesus. They want him to come out and say it. Well, Jesus answered them. I told you, and you do not believe, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to stretch, snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus had just made at the Feast of Booths a messianic claim. I am the good shepherd. I claim to be the Messiah. I'm the good shepherd of Ezekiel 34. You don't believe me because you're not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. They, we talked about this last week. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. Jesus is determined. Jesus is adamant. He will not give an inch about who he is. When they said, when they said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, plain to tell us. Jesus answered them, look at it. I've already told you. How many times do I have to say it? All my works. Back up what I have told you about myself. 
Last week, the subject was the care of the shepherd. The great care of the shepherd for his sheep. That he gave his life for his sheep. This week, he's speaking about the power. The power first that he has to be the Messiah. The power to be the Son of God. And secondly, the power to keep his sheep. He says to them, your unbelief has nothing to do with, what I, with who I am. I am. I am who I am. I have the power to be who I am. Without your permission. Without your faith. We need to hear this. We live in a culture. We live in a culture that teaches us and our children that we determine what our truth is. That'll be your truth. This will be my truth. And George will have his truth over here. We determine. Jesus said, You've seen the evidence. I make blind people see by fiat. I make paralyzed people to walk just by telling them to walk. I raise the dead. He's talking about his power. And they pick up stones. In this passage, they pick up stones to stone him for blasphemy. And notice he doesn't say, wait a minute now, let me qualify that. You're misunderstanding me. As he refers to his deity, he refers to his power. And even this blind man had said, this is strange that you think he's evil. Has there ever been anyone, the blind man told him, has there ever been anyone that spoke and made a person see just by speaking? Notice, notice that he says in this passage, look at, Look at verses 17 and 18 on our scripture sheet. He says, I have the power. I have the power to lay down my life. I will lay down my life. No one takes it from me. We saw this last. Pilate can't take it from him. The Sanhedrin can't take it from him. Caesar can't take it from him. No one can take it from him. He lays it down. What's he talking about? He's talking about his power to be who he is. I can lay my life down and then what? I can take it up again. He's talking about his power to be the Messiah. Sometimes well-meaning Christians will say to the world around them, you need to make Jesus your Lord. You need to make Jesus your king today. I'm sorry. That's just bad theology. It really is. Jesus is already who he is. Your faith does not make him the king of kings and lord of lords. Your faith does not make him the son of God. If he is not deity, then it's impossible for your faith to make him deity. 
If he is deity, it's impossible for you to make him any less. Imagine going to Adam after God has made him and says, Now, Adam, you know what you need to do? You need to make God your creator. Adam will look at you and say, You're an idiot. God is my creator. The issue is whether I will love him. The issue is whether I'll bow the knee to him. Jesus goes on to speak about his power in another way. Last week we spoke of the care of the shepherd. Today the passage is about the power of the shepherd. I have the power to be who I am. And then he adds this. I give them, talking about what he gives his sheep, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will ever snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I not only have the power to lay down my life, to take it again, to be God, to be Messiah, I not only have that power, but I have the power. My sheep are in my hand. And nothing or no one at any time, in any place, can take my sheep away from me. A good shepherd protected his sheep. It was common in that day. This was shepherding country. A good shepherd protected his sheep from wolves, from dogs, from lions. You remember when David walked into the camp to take some food to his brothers who were soldiering Saul's army and he saw Goliath and Goliath was actually teasing and laughing at the soldiers of Israel, challenging someone to come out and fight. David's like 15 years old, 16 years old. And he says, I'll go fight him and the troops laughed. And they took him to Saul and said, Saul, this, this kid wants to fight a lie. And Saul laughed at him. And what did David say? He said, King Saul, I'm a shepherd. And even at my young age, I've killed bears and lions when they've come after my lambs. Jesus is saying the same thing here. He's speaking here about his power as a shepherd to protect his flock. The picture here is not that we have a grip on Jesus. Jesus is not saying to us, hold on tight to me now. Your life depends on it. He's not saying that. He's saying just the opposite. He says, you're in my hand and you can't get away. That's it. You try to, try to stray, stray away, your own volition, I'm going to come get you. And there's not any power on earth. That can take you from me. When I, in my early childhood, I was raised in the country, not a small town like Oakland or some. I mean, this was the country. We lived on Lee Highway. 81 took Lee Highway's place. <clears throat> there, was some, there was some fields behind our house, and those fields went up to a wooded ridge. And I would walk in those fields with my father when I was three and four, five years old. And I was really independent. I know y'all 
wouldn't believe that. But I was really independent, and and my dad would say, "Here, John, let me take your hand." Oh. I'd try walking through there by myself. And the weeds would be high. Some were higher than my head. <clears throat> and I would end up, of course, flat on my face. And I would get up, and he would stick out his hand. But even then, I didn't want him to hold on to me. I would take his finger or two fingers. I couldn't get my little hand around his big hand. And then we'd walk that way. And, of course, I would end up again flat on my face because my grip wouldn't hold him. And finally, he would put his hand wide open and I would lay my hand in his and he would close that big hand around mine. Now, I still tripped. But when I did, I just swayed back and forth because my dad's hand and arm held me. I couldn't grip. My, I couldn't depend on my grip on him. I had to depend on his grip on us. You say, well, what about our brothers and sisters who were martyred under Hitler? We're not talking about in the first century in the Romans, but just a few years ago. Millions of Christians were slaughtered because they were Christians by Hitler, by Marx. By Stalin, by Mao Tse-Sung, Mao Tse-Sung, they were martyred, cruelly killed. They were, but they were faithful. They were faithful to the consternation of Satan. And Jesus kept them because thou, they are in glory. This spring, this last spring, we studied the power of Satan and his Antichrist in the book of Revelation. In one way, that study really, really shook me, especially this spring. In the 20th century, Satan ripped and tore at the church, killing millions in Germany, Russia, China. If you don't understand that that was by the hand and power of Satan, then you don't know Satan and you don't know your Bible. Jesus told Peter, Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. Peter later wrote in 1 Peter 5.8, You be sober-minded, you be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Folks, when God takes away the restraints that have limited Satan's power while his church grew to the ends of the earth, when God takes those restraints away, and he will, just shortly before Christ returns, when God takes away those restraints, we will see the power and cruelty of Satan as has never been seen before on earth. Look at Revelation 13. We're right at the end. Look at Revelation 13, 5 through 10. This is sobering. And the beast, that is the Antichrist, 
was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to other blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints, look at this, and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. There's never been a time like that in the history of mankind. The church is going to get obliterated. People are going to be killed like never before. Satan will wreak havoc, but he won't take one lamb from Jesus. He will certainly kill many of Jesus' flock, as he already has. What we saw in Revelation, what happens? The moment, the moment they're martyred, they're home with Jesus. What do we say at Every funeral, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's not for everyone, but it's for his lambs. It's for his sheep. Satan and death will say, well, at least we took their bodies. At least we got their bodies. Jesus has a message for Satan. No, Satan. I'm coming. And I'm coming after you. And I'm coming after every evil. And I will not only put an end to you. I'm going to restore the bodies of the souls that come with me. There's going to be a resurrection, Satan. Satan, you thought you had killed me. You thought you ended my life on Calvary. You danced. My grave. And Satan, I walked out of that grave. I have the power to take my life. I have the power to be the son of God and you don't. I'll return and I'll snatch their bodies from your grip and I'll restore them body and soul. We sang it a minute ago. People. We are prone to wonder. We're prone to leave the God we love. But we're greatest, but our greatest comfort is that we belong body and soul to Jesus. Like David, we can say, the Lord is my shepherd. And my grip on him will inevitably slip and I will fall. But his grip, on, his grip on me never will. It won't slip. And that grip is omnipotent. It holds a universe. It will hold his sheep. And that grip is eternal. Amen.
There's only one hymn to sing in Christ alone. Let's stand.